Welcome to the Battle Cry Podcast with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. You can watch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Convention of States Facebook and Rumble channels. The question is what efforts are being made to broaden the interests of the younger generation? You need to reach them to be successful in the long run. I have an answer to it. Go for it. In North Carolina, we're actually working uh, on an effort to to align ourselves with uh, Turning Point USA on every college campus. Good. So in, uh, this started back in 2017. We started our first intern class. And we started, I think, our first class was five interns. Now we have 16 interns. Uh, used to be a half a year course. Now it's a one year course. We teach them servant leadership. We teach them Western civilization. And we teach them statesmanship. They go through this process a whole year. Uh, we generally do at least one trip. We take them to Washington, D.C. We show them the inner workings of the swamp so they know where to stay away from. <laughs> or they know how to put on the full armor of God if they're going to go there and they need to be protected. But we've, So we recruit all these young people in. And then what we do is to the extent that they make it through the program, and I would say out of 16, we usually have 15 that make it all the way through the year, we hire as many of them as we can into the organization. We lose a bunch of them, you know, some of my best go off to law school uh, and other careers. I had two young guys early on who ran the program that are both in the Marine Corps now, they're officers in the Marine Corps, so some of them go off and do other things, but we've hired a bunch of them on staff. And I think this is really important because if we're going to attract younger people to the cause, then we have to have younger people leading the cause. I hear this really often, and I see a couple of young people here in front, and I appreciate you guys being here. But usually what happens is, what we do in conservative politics, I would say, is that our way of approaching younger people is we say, hey, we'd like you to come to our meeting on a Wednesday night, or whatever it is, and the first thing they think is, really? Do I gotta? <laughs> right? And then, so we say, because what we're going to do is a bunch of old people are going to get in a room, and then we're going to talk like old people about old people stuff. It's going to be really exciting for you. If you're really lucky, we might let you say the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> it's a terrible way to get people involved in politics. And if you look at the way the left engages younger people in politics, what they do is they bring them in and they just go, go to work, lead, do what you can do, show us what you can do. And so what we do in our organization when we bring young people in is we say, lead. Like how much, how much responsibility do you want? And we're, we'll give you the responsibility, we'll give you the budget, we'll give you the support you need to go out and fail spectacularly. Because that's what we all did when we were younger, right? And we think it's important that you bring people in and give them responsibility and authority and you let them get it done, you let them fail, you let them succeed. And so I think we've got a lot of stuff going on in the organization we wouldn't have right now if we didn't continually work to make the organization younger. So that's one of the things that we're doing at a national level. And there's a big reason for that also, which is I'm old. <laughs> I don't know how to do young people stuff. It's not what I do. And so if you want to know how to communicate with younger people, you ask younger people to lead that for you. You don't try and impose our way on them because it doesn't work. And the last thing I would say is, uh, ever since the Tea Party movement, I've had people saying to me, you know, I come to these meetings and it just makes me feel bad because I see very few young people in the room. And I say, what you don't understand is they're not doing politics the way that we do politics. They're engaged, but you won't see them because they're not going to come to a meeting like this on a weeknight. They're engaged online. 
And they're, they're engaged through Instagram, they're engaged through TikTok, which for the record I think should be outlawed in the United States. But that's where they're engaged, they're engaged in places like that, they're not engaged by coming to a meeting on a weeknight somewhere. I love, this is one of my favorite questions, because <laughs> they made it up is really the only reason. I and mean, this is the funniest thing. The best thing anybody ever tweeted about me, and I actually printed this out, and I have it in my office sitting on my desk. It says, Mark Meckler and Convention Estates are supported by George Soros and the Koch brothers. <laughs> I thought, man, I'm good. <laughs> I've united the entire country on the right thing, right? No, it's honestly, it's just actually made up. And this is what's so astounding. The people who say this stuff actually are using the talking points of George Soros organizations. So when you say runaway convention, when you say we're going to lose our constitution if we do this, those are things that La Raza says and Planned Parenthood and MoveOn.org and Hillary Clinton and Howard Dean all say the same thing. I actually, the first time I went and testified was in the Montana legislature and uh, I went there, Mike coached me up and I got in there and Common Cause, which is a left-wing organization, was circulating a memo to Democrat senators that said, the John Burt Society are our friends on this one, be nice to them when they're testifying and here are their talking points. And so really, it's the, it's the left is in bed with these radical right-wing groups that accuse us of being in bed with George Soros. It's really outrageous. On a couple of meetings, every now and then this happens, somebody in the audience will say that. Well, you guys are supported by George Soros and Soros organizations. What I usually say, I usually have my iPad with me, and I usually say, here's my iPad, and you can sit in the back of the room and you can research that and at the end of the meeting if you can come up and show me where we've gotten any money from a George Soros related organization then I will personally cut you a check for $10,000. They've never taken the iPad. They won't even try and look. They won't even do the homework. They won't even do... Because it, it's ridiculous. You know, look at Mike Ferris, 40 plus years of pure conservatism, a track record. Me now, 13 years in conservative politics, a public track record. Rick Santorum, Mark Levin, uh, Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, Ben Ship. We're all Soros plants now, right? <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Okay, well, as you mentioned Mark Levin, there was a question here that said that they heard that you stole Mark Levin's idea about Article 5. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, there's an interesting story around that. You know, Mike lives very close to where Mark Levin lives. These guys would cross paths in the grocery store and stuff. And, and so they knew each other long, longer than me and longer than I had known Mark Levin. I knew Mark from the Tea Party movement. And so Mike and I started working. I told you the story how we got together. We started working on this Article 5 stuff. And we decided we were going to found up an organization. Uh, we took a little bit of office space in Percival, Virginia, where Mike lives, and right next to Patrick Henry College, and hired up some staff, and we were getting ready to launch the, the effort. And I had talked to Levin in the past about the idea of Article 5, and he was actually kind of against it. And he wasn't a fanatic, but he just said, ah, oh, that's just crazy, and he did the kind of runaway thing, and just, but it was a brief conversation. I happened to be on a talk show with Hugh Hewitt on a live panel in Tucson, Arizona, and this is about six weeks before we launched Convention Estates. And, uh, and the panel is called Constitution on Fire. 
And as I get there, Hugh says to me, hey, just so you know, my friend Mark Levin is going to Skype into the panel, and each panelist will get to ask him a question. So we're sitting up in front of the room like this. There's a table in front of us. And, and so we're sitting up there, and Mark Skypes in. And you know, it's just you could see him, his scruffy beard. He's got his baseball cap on, his kind of scruffy baseball cap. And I am the first person who gets to ask him a question. And I think, OK, I'm going to go for it. Completely self-centered, so like I'm going to do myself some good. I'm going to get Mark on my side. And I say, Mark, I have a question for you. Seems like we've lost our country. I feel like the electeds in Washington, D.C., of both parties, they don't respond to us anymore. The elections aren't the way we're going to save our country. It seems like we've got to go to Article 5. We've got to call a convention, and we've got to propose amendments to restrain the federal government. And I'm just curious what your opinion is on this. And so Mark is on a big screen behind me so the audience can see him. He's also on one in front of us so we can see him. And I'm looking at Mark, and Mark says, and I'll give as close to an exact quote as I can. I don't remember the exact words, but I can get pretty close. He said, well, I, uh, I think that uh, I just, uh, I'm writing a book, and I can't, I mean, I can't talk about it, uh, but I agree with you. And that's the entire answer. It's like the shortest Mark Levine answer in the history of the world. And I'm thinking, I'm not really sure exactly what that's just weird. What does that mean? And so it goes to the next person to ask a question. And I have my phone sitting on the dais in front of me on the table. And I've got it turned on vibrate. And it vibrates. And I look down, and Mark Levin is texting me. <laughs> and, and the next person is asking the question. I have to look up on the screen. And he's looking down. And he's going like this. <laughs> And he says, call me as soon as you're done. We need to talk. And I think, oh, I got him. We're in. This is awesome. <laughs> so as soon as the event's over, I go running out to the foyer to give Mark a call. And he picks up the phone. And the second he picks up the phone, he's screaming at me. It's the full Mark Levin tirade, right? You know the whole, you're an idiot kind of tirade. There's a lot worse words that are being said at this point. And he's yelling at me. And he's saying, look, you." You have no idea. You had no right to do what you did. You could have caused me to breach my contract. How dare you? And I have no idea what he's talking about. I'm trying to get a word in, but you can imagine trying to interrupt Mark Levin. It's like standing in front of a freight train. And so eventually he takes a breath and I go, Mark, I have no idea what you're talking about. And there's this long pause. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I just..." And he goes, I'm talking about my book. And I said, I, I know you're writing a book because you're crankier than usual. <laughs> but I don't know what your book's about. And he said, I, I never told you. And I said, no. And he said, I'm writing a book called The Liberty Amendments. And it's about using Article 5 to call a convention of states to save the country. <laughs> and I'm dumbfounded. And he stops and he says, and I'll never forget this. He goes, this is not coincidence. This is providence. <laughs> and so I didn't steal it. God put that together. Senate will pick up the vote after our rally. I mean, there's really no way to know. So here's what we've been told, so you all know. And it's, you know, we're always transparent about what's going on. The leadership in the Senate has told us when we come to them with a solid 26 votes so that they know that they can pass this thing, that's when we're going to see it move. And I think where we're at right now, and you know, I'm roughing, but I think we're at pretty solid 23. And nope, 24. Okay, so Joy's giving me the, the actual number. So we are a couple votes short of where we need to be. We've got to be able to go to leadership and say, these are the names, here's the proof that they're with us. In the past, one of the things that's happened for us is 
we'd go to leadership and we'd say, oh, we got 26. And then leadership would come back and say, we just had a caucus meeting. Y'all don't got 26. Right? Because in caucus, people tell you things to your face, and then they'll go say something different in caucus. I can tell you want to add something to that. I have to add. <laughs> okay. So he mentions this thing called caucus. Okay. That's when they go talk behind closed doors. We don't know what they say unless we can find somebody that will give us a little insight, and this year we may have that person. There is a uh, prior House member named Tim Moffitt. Uh, he is um, a member of the Senate now, and he is all over supporting us. Again, I feel real good about the fact that we have him on board. There are two freshman senators that these gentlemen both met with today. They are leaning very much towards us because of what we've done and what they did today. And I'm pretty sure that, that Senator Moffitt's going to be able to kind of help them over the edge. Maybe another visit from these guys. Uh, and again, he'll be back here on the 19th, so we'll make sure we, we, we make that happen. Um, unless we pass before then, and then we'll have a party on the 19th. Okay? We'll have a really big party on the 19th. Um, so that, that, that is a game changer. Just having somebody who is going to be in the room when the door is closed that's saying this is something we have to talk about and something we have to do, and we've not ever had that in North Carolina. Yeah. That's what I wanted to add. Yeah, I mean, that's, look, that's a really big deal. You can have the votes, but if you don't have a champion, then you still don't win. Because in the caucus, somebody's going to go, I don't know, do we really need to do, let's do this next year. Yeah. Right? I don't want to get, I got people who are going to hassle me if we do it. And so it's really easy to shut it down in caucus if you don't have some champions in caucus. One of the things that Mike and I were talking about with the senators today is who's going to champion? I mean, we heard today something that was really helpful, which is, I don't know, I think there's like five lawyers in the Senate now, and all the lawyers are in favor. And one of the lawyers told us, look, if you have all the lawyers stand up and say, hey, look, we vetted this thing, all of us understand the law and the history, and we, we all cleared, that really helps the rest of the Senate to feel comfortable. So we're going to put together a lawyer's caucus. Mike and I will help them train them up. And the goal is just get some people who stand and are pretty ferocious in caucus saying, we got to do this, we got to do it now. I was handed one of the questions. It says, what prevents federal or state politicians from just ignoring a COS or ratified amendments to keep their own power? Well, there's lots of answers to that. One is you can force amendments through the courts. Um, if, if somebody tried to, if um, South Carolina decided they were going to appoint their senators rather than elect them, they'd get sued and South Carolina would lose. You, you can't ignore them what the Constitution says. You, you, you can't get away with something that clean. The, uh, but the ultimate answer to all this is these amendments are going to be adopted as a result of all of America watching the six months of television. Then they're all going to be glued to what's happening in the states. And the people are going to be paying attention. It's an alert citizenry that's the ultimate answer to, to keep people uh, from disobeying the law, disobeying the will of the people. I, I've come to believe after, you know, doing this area of constitutional law for, it's getting real close to 50 years now, uh, 47 I think it is, um, that we the people really is meaningful. Because if you don't actually have a majority, a good majority of the people backing an idea, you can neither win nor sustain a constitutional rule of any kind. 
whether that's the right to trial by jury, freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, I don't care what it is. If you don't have a good slice of the American public backing you, you can't sustain it over time. And so we are the ultimate defense of this. An enlightened citizenry is the ultimate defense of our liberty, and we just have to recognize that. That's the price of this. So, so we can't go to sleep. And we, if we get this all done and we get four or five amendments through and we get them all ratified, first of all, that's great, but I really wanted about nine or ten. And so, you know, four or five is back, and let's go back and get some more. But we can, we can continuously So two things are going to be happening at once. Our, the, the one force, progressive, socialist, amoral, anti-God forces of this country are moving rapidly in one direction. A movement's arising from the grassroots that's the exact opposites, that's rising in the, in the opposite direction. And we're going to decide which kind of country we're going to be. Uh, I walked past a rally today as I was walking from the legislative office buildings back to our hotel so I could uh, log in to try to testify before the mayor of the legislature on COS. And there was a left-wing rally going on there. And there were about a hundred people there spouting their stuff and they're, you know, saying all the things. You, know, you could just take, uh, it's, it's like their speech was written by artificial intelligence. You know? <laughs> uh, it, it, was just, it was just the same lines just regurgitated. Uh, you know, you could, um, and, you know, they've got their forces. But we've got our forces. And, and the good news is, the good news, most Americans still believe in freedom. And they don't. I mean, I mean and I'm not just saying that, it's my assessment. Um, Lewis Michael Seidman teaches constitutional law at Georgetown Law School. He says in the Washington Post, in an article he wrote, not somebody quoting him, he wrote the article that said, I no longer believe in freedom of speech as a good tool for this country. They don't believe in freedom. They say so out loud. Catherine McKinnon at the University, or at, uh, University of Michigan Law School says essentially the same thing. Uh, Margaret Albertson Finneman at Emory Law School says all private education in America, homeschools, private schools, Christian schools, all private schools should be closed. She takes the exact same position as the state of Oregon did in the 1920s when they banned all private education. Same position Adolf Hitler took in the 1930s in Germany. And by, by the way, you know who backed the, the uh, plan of banning the private schools in, in Oregon? It was the Ku Klux Klan. So Martha Albertson Finneman at Emory Law School today takes the same position as the Ku Klux Klan on whether private schools should be allowed to exist in this country. Folks, you give me those kind of odds any day, and you just point stuff out to people, and, and you give the, the majority of people in this country still believe the right stuff. They still believe in freedom. They get confused about this and that, but you can boil it down to its essential terms. The vast majority of people in this country still believe in freedom, and I think that we have the responsibility for helping our friends and neighbors see what's going on, let's give them the truth, and we can win.
the, uh, the last thing we have, we've answered all the questions. Um, how, can, how can you help? That's the question. And I, I don't know which one you want to talk about it, but there's a lot of ways, little ways and big ways. You want to do practical and then I'll close. Sure. If you haven't signed the petition, uh, the second thing, if you're if you're willing to give us an, 30 minutes a week, an hour a week, three hours a week, there are different ways that you can do that. You can be a district captain, really important role because we need to build the, 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 the volunteers in every district. And we walk you through the process. We've got a great team of people that, that help you. Even louder? Okay. Uh, or, or, or just go to the Take Action page and become a volunteer activist. Show up for our Tuesday night calls because that's how you can learn about what's going on, what's changing. Because right now, and things are going to be changing quickly. So those are the practical things, on, on the ground things that you can do to help us. And where do they sign up here? Uh, we have a computer right in the back of the room where you can sign the petition. And um, if you want to, if, 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 I don't think you would want to do this here, but if you'd like to actively get involved uh, to help us do gun shows, to help us, uh, again, do local breakfasts, to, to do all kinds of different things, um, then go to conventionstates.com forward slash take action or go to the conventionstates.com and click on the take action tab. And there you can learn about all the ways you can get involved. If you're big into social media, gosh, we need you badly. But yeah, we really need you badly if you're big into social media. We've never succeeded in building that, and that's one of my goals for this year is to successfully build that here in North Carolina. Mike, you want anything close? Pray. Um, okay. no, I, 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 I thought so you were trying to tickle me. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, I have been involved in these kinds of things for a very long time. And I can tell you long stories to prove the point, but I'll just say this. God answers prayer. Amen. And why would God be interested in this? Because the philosophy of the other side is that government is God. There's a false God on the throne. And anybody that irrigates themselves or itself to God's opposed to that. And anybody, you know, and ask yourself this question. What's going to solve all your problems? If you think government's going to solve all your problems, then government's God. If you think money's going to solve all your problems, money's God. If you think you as an individual can solve all your problems, then man is God. But if you know that there's a role for money, there's a role for government, there's a role for the individual, but ultimately God's going to be the source of my provision, God's going to be the source of solving my problems, then you believe that God is God. And God is on side of the issue of when he is the issue, when he's the divide line. And it's becoming more and more clear in the country. It's not Republican or Democrat because, frankly, I think there are two political parties in this country, an evil party and a stupid party. And, and, uh, and, and so, uh, but it's not Republican or Democrat. It's God or anti-God. And, and that's the real division because of so many things. But ultimately, who solves your problems? I believe it's Jehovah Jireh, not Uncle Sam Jireh. It's just the way it works. So I want to close you with a little story, uh, which is one of my favorite stories from American history. 
which is about John Quincy Adams. And you all know John Quincy Adams. He was the president of the United States. We know him from that. What most people don't know is after he was president, he went back and he was elected to the House of Representatives, which seems stunning to me in general, like you're the number one guy, and then you go be a backbencher in Congress. But John Quincy Adams went to be a backbencher in Congress because he had something that he was incredibly passionate about, and that was the abolition of slavery. And he hadn't done that as president, and he was going to labor to get it done in Congress. He served 17 years in Congress. It's the only thing that he cared about while he was in Congress. And he was actually an annoyance to all of his colleagues, the public at large, and even the media. And when he got near the end of his career in Congress, uh, somebody from the press came up to him and asked him, uh, Mr. Adams, what's your problem? How come all you talk about is abolition? You don't care about anything else. You know, he, he talked about abolition so much that the Congress actually passed the John Quincy Adams Censure Act. And it literally said if he talked about abolition on the floor of the House of Representatives, then they would hold a five-day censure trial. So he talked about it so he could get five more days to talk about abolition. <laughs> you can imagine he was kind of difficult to deal with. And so this guy from the press is like, it's all you ever talk about, it's never going to get done, nobody cares about it, you're an annoyance to your colleagues, you're an annoyance to the press, why do you do it? And Adams responded something that I try to teach all of our grassroots, I try to remember this for myself, it's not always easy to remember, he said, duty is ours and the results belong to God. In other words, he knew that he was doing his duty, and I think in this country, we don't think enough about duty anymore. We don't hear duty talked about. Duty is what you do because it's the right thing to do. It's what you do when nobody's watching because it's the right thing to do. It's what you do when there's no chance for you to profit personally, but you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's what you do for future generations who you don't know and you will never know, and you do it for them because it's the right thing to do. That's what John Quincy Adams was doing. And when we do those things on this earth, very often, there is no earthly reward. Like John Quincy Adams dies on the floor of Congress. There's actually a plaque if you go to the, the uh, statuary hall. That used to be part of the house. There's a plaque on the floor there that shows you where he had a stroke. Literally wow. fell right there in the house. Actually ended up dying in what's now the ladies' cloakroom, but right there he fell. And you can think of the story this way, that when he died, he had failed. He'd been president. He had been in Congress 17 years, and he did not accomplish his life's aim, which was the abolition of slavery. So that's one way to look at it. In his last term in Congress, there was a congressman serving with him who was completely enamored with the fact that John Quincy Adams was in Congress, and he could actually talk to the guy, a former president, and he could spend time with the guy, and he could learn from the guy, and he attached himself to John Quincy Adams, and he was mentored by Adams. And Adams taught his three-part plan for abolition to this young congressman. And in fact, they became such close friends that when John Quincy Adams' funeral was held, his state funeral, one of the pallbearers was this young congressman. This young congressman, when his term was over, got called home to his home state, and he was not allowed by his party to run again. But he later ran for another office, ran, and he lost that election. He ran a second time, and he lost that election as well. And he ran a third time, and the third time he was indeed elected. And when he was elected the third time, you all know his name because he is the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln. And this story is really important because it shows you what one person doing their duty regardless of the outcome leaving the outcome to God can accomplish because I think it's fair to say it's very probable that without John Quincy Adams you don't have Abraham Lincoln stepping forward as the great emancipator in American history so I would ask you tonight 
to think about your duty. I know you're all busy. I know you're all too busy. You got kids, you got grandkids, you got businesses, you got retirement stuff, you got travel. All of us are busy, but all of us have a duty. And we look back all the way to the founding and before, and we know that people before us did their duty, and that's why we can be here. Right? You think of the pilgrims that came over, half of them died. Think of all the people that fought in the American Revolution. Think of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence and how many of them died or, or died penniless. Right? Think of all those people who did their duty so we can be here and ask yourself, will you do your duty to make sure that this great country doesn't fall? And I hope that when you think about that, I believe that everybody else, everybody in this room knows exactly what their duty is and wants to live up to that sense of duty. Then I would ask that you sign up and do something. Get in the fight, get involved in convention estates, and don't ever quit. If people ask me, will I ever quit? And my answer is yes, I will quit. When the first shovel of dirt hits the top of that ca ca uh, casket, I will quit on that day, but not before. So I'm with you guys. God bless you for being here. I appreciate it. This has been the podcast version of The Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. Visit conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. Thank you for listening.